On July 15th, 1986, um, Roger Clemens uh, came to bat in his first major league uh, baseball all-star game. Roger Clemens uh, was the sizzling right-hand pitcher for the Boston Red Sox at that time, and he had been named um, to the American League all-star team um, as the starting pitcher. Um, in the second inning of that all-star game, uh, Roger Clemens came up to bat. It was his turn to bat, but that was something that he hadn't really done too much of because he was in the American League, and the American League had what they called the designated hitter, uh, someone else who would bat for uh, the pitcher. But in that year, that all-star game, back in 1986, the game between the American League and the National League, what happens is they played by the National League rules where pitchers had to bat for themselves. So catch this, Roger Clemens was coming up to bat for the very first time. He took a, a few uncertain uh, swings there in the batter's box um, and then um, he looked out on the mound, and there on the mound was the National League starting pitcher, Dwight Gooden. <laughs> um, the year before, Dwight Gooden had won the Cy, Ward, uh, Cy Young Award, the, the award given to the best pitcher in all of baseball. So now catch what's happening here. Here's a pitcher who's really never faced um, um, you know, live batting. And here he was facing now the best pitcher in all of baseball. Dwight Gooden wound up and threw a white, hot, streaking fastball. I mean, that just, just blew by Roger Clemens. Clemens took a step back out of the batter's box, uh, blinked his eyes a few times, looked down at the catcher, uh, Gary Carter, and he said, uh, Gary, is that what my pitches look like? <laughs> uh, Carter said, you bet it is. Roger Clemens stepped back into the batter's box and he proceeded to uh, quickly strike, strike out. But when he went back onto that pitcher's mound to pitch for his team, he threw three perfect innings. Nobody on the other team even got close to getting a hit. He was voted the game's most valuable player. And from that day on, he would tell people he had greater confidence in his own pitching. Why? Because once he understood, once he had experienced how powerful his own fastball was, <laughs> he pitched with all the confidence in the world. I ask that question, or I tell that story because um, I want to ask a question, how could we as a church have that same confidence that God is working in us here at First Free to impact our neighborhood of South Minneapolis. I mean, what could we see? What could we visualize that would tell us that God was working in us to win people to Jesus Christ and to build them up in their faith? In true Minnesota fashion, uh, you know, what happens is I, I find we tend to view ourselves as, you know, kind of insignificant, small, powerless. Um, after all, I mean, we're, we're just a, a neighborhood church. 
Our building is old. <laughs> and, and our building needs uh, uh, updating continuously and uh, repairs continuously. We don't have one of those wide open fancy lobby foyers in our church that the newer church buildings have. Um, some of our ministries, I mean, face it, some of them struggle. We don't always have enough volunteers. And we can't meet everyone's needs. So like Roger Clemens, who saw that white, hot fastball just, just blaze by him, what could we see that could give us confidence that God is at work in us, that God is at work in us as his church? And I got to tell you, it's not just a question for us collectively as, as, as a church. No, it's also uh, a question that we need to ask um, for ourselves as individuals. What would give you, what would give each one of us the confidence that God is genuinely at work in you? What would give you the confidence um, that he's part of your life, that you belong to him, and that all of his thoughts are centered on you? What tangible, objective thing could you point to that would uh, give you that absolute confidence that God's power is at work in you. Hmm. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, would you, this morning? Ephesians chapter 1. Um, because at the very end of um, uh, this very first chapter, what we find is a prayer by the Apostle Paul that I think points us to the answer to those questions. Um, now, I want to remind you that as we continue our sermon series, because we've started in the sermon series on Ephesians, that um, you can walk through this text. We have some uh, resources available to, to you to help you study better, maybe in your small group. Hopefully, we're, we're pointing you and encouraging you to do this in your small group. There's a study guide that we have each week. And uh, part two that deals with this section is available outside here in the lobby at the, at the guest information on a, as a paper copy, but you also can find it online um, with your um, uh, notes uh, online there in the sermon outline. So we want to encourage you to pick that up to go through this, um, maybe individually or in your small groups to go through our Ephesians study with us. Now, last Sunday... Um, um, as we launch into this study of Ephesians here in chapter 1, we looked at the first 14 verses. Um, and in those verses, we saw some of uh, the great blessings that God has lavished on those who are in Christ. Blessings like he has adopted us. Blessings like he has redeemed us and forgiven us and he has sealed us. Um, and so now, following those blessings... Paul continues with a great intercession. He prays that God will open our eyes to grasp the fullness of God's blessings that he's just listed. Start with me, look with me in verse 15. Look what he says here. For this reason, the reason is um, the, uh, the um, blessings that he has just listed, okay? Because of all that God has done in us and for us, okay? For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, 
remembering you in my prayers. And then starting in verse 17, what Paul does is he gives us the content of his prayers, what he is praying for. Look with me, verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Paul's prayer, catch this, is that God's spirit, whom they have already received, right? Because they are in Christ, they're in the family of God, that that uh, spirit, God's spirit will grow them in their wisdom and in their understanding for life. When he says that, phrase here when he says are the eyes of your hearts enlightened um, Paul is praying that the, that, the, that the lights will go on inside of them so that they'll be transformed has someone ever said to you um, something and then you've replied oh yeah I see what you mean <laughs> what you're saying is that you uh, saw with your mind what they ha- were describing or telling you about um and, and Paul is doing that same thing. You didn't see it with, uh, uh, physically. No, you saw it with your mind. And Paul is saying something pretty similar here. He's saying, hey, I'm praying that you so deeply grasp the revelation made to our minds that it will sink deep into your hearts and um, we become, uh, we start seeing what God is doing in us and through us. My, his prayer is that we might know the blessings of God, not just intellectually, catch this, not just in the mind, but actually know them, know those blessings through experience. And his prayer is that our knowledge of God will impact the way we live, that we'll put it into practice, this wisdom and revelation of God. And as we do that, we will see God's Uh, work and power on display and our confidence that God is working, that confidence will grow. Paul then names three specific prayer requests to help us build that confidence. Look with me, starting in verse 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, here's the three requests, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Um, Three specific prayer requests, three specific realities he wants us to know and wants us to experience. Um, First, the hope of God's calling. Second, uh, the riches of God's uh, glorious inheritance in the saints. And third, the incomparable greatness of God's power in us. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a closer look at each one of these three requests um, because they are designed, think about this, they're designed to give us the confidence that we need to live um, our lives, holy lives, to give us the confidence we need as we encounter pressures and difficulties in our world. First of all, he says, we need to know I'm praying that you would know the hope of God's calling. The call of God, think about that, takes uh, us very, back to the very beginning of um, our Christian life. What did God call us for? 
I mean, his call is not random. It wasn't uh, purposeless. No, God called us to, to something and, and, and for something. In effect, Paul prays that we will know the significance of God choosing us. God, Scripture tells us throughout Scripture, God has called us, what, to belong um, to Jesus Christ, to be part of the family of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 7, reminds us that God has called us to be saints. Earlier here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, we're reminded that we are called to be holy. Galatians tells us that we are called uh, to freedom. Um, later in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, we are told that we must live a life worthy of our calling to which we have been called. A life of unity and, and uh, peace in the family of Christ. And certainly God calls us to his eternal glory, right? Eternal glory in Christ where he himself will restore and, and confirm and strengthen and establish us. All this, all this was in God's mind when he called us. He called us to serve Christ. Um, he called us to holiness. He called us to a new life which, uh, in which we know and love and obey and, and serve Christ and enjoy fellowship with him and with each other. And he's called us to look beyond our present difficulties and sufferings to the glory that one day will be ours in Christ. That's God's calling. And that is to be our hope. Our culture offers no basis for hope. You've discovered that? I mean, all you have to do is look around. I mean, there's crime, uh, homelessness, racism, uh, terrorism, uh, a bunch of other isms, you know, that constantly threaten us. We're taught at an early age, you know, you ever hear that fairy tale line that says, and they lived, all lived happily ever after? And we've kind of grown up with um, pursuing that illusion. But while life and God's creation are good, and they are certainly to be enjoyed, the truth is that there are no happy endings, at least in this life. But God's work in Christ addresses our meaninglessness. Death is not the end. And those in Christ, they can look forward to an incredibly great ending of life with God. Now, I don't understand all that the eternal glory includes, but I can't wait because I believe what Scripture has to say about it. I mean, we're told in Scriptures that, you know, <laughs> these bodies that we have, they are growing old and will lose their powers. And over the past few years, I... I tell you, I can attest to the, the truth of that. I mean, my kids keep pointing out to me how my hair is turning gray. <laughs> and listen, I, I don't uh, need them to tell me that my body is losing its elasticity. I mean, I can, I can tell that each day. But I don't know why. I mean, really, because in my mind, I think I'm still 25, you know? Um, but as I get older, my body wears down. I must remember 
that I am like we all are who are in Christ, that we are future-oriented people. Our hope is not in this world, but it's in the next. It's important not to forget that, friends. Don't succumb to the philosophy around you that you have to get it now or or you'll never have a chance. (laughs) You can pass by a lot of things and you can be content because you, you know what God has waiting for you when this life is over. So don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. And that's Paul's prayer. That's Paul's prayer, that we might grow in our knowledge of this great hope to which God has called us. He gives a second prayer request, a second reality. We need to know the riches of God's inheritance. You know, when we hear that word inheritance, um, immediately our thoughts take us back to that, that, that final inheritance that we'll all receive, that Peter describes as, you know, imperishable and undefiled and unfading, uh, kept in heaven for you. I mean, what a great promise that is. But I got to tell you, that's not the inheritance that Paul is praying for here. <laughs> um, uh, he's talking about God's inheritance in us. Do you see this? Look at the uh, uh, end of verse 18. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance? What? In the saints. In the saints. Paul is talking about the Father's inheritance. Not the believer's inheritance, not yours and my inheritance, but the Father's inheritance. And you and I are God's inheritance. <laughs> God considers us his treasures. So Paul is referring to the enrichment that will come to our lives when we discover what it means to let God have what is his, his inheritance in us. What's that? All through scripture, we're being told that when we are uh, surrendered to Christ, um, God gave us gifts that we never had before. Every Christian has one or, or more gifts that they're giving in order that when, when we begin to exercise, the church will flourish. We'll find that we can help others. And life becomes this exciting adventure of faith. God's inheritance in us is the joy he feels in using us to accomplish his work of, of, of changing people, of bringing them from, from, from death to, to life, using the gifts he has given us. The Apostle Paul is praying that we discover how exciting and rich and enriching that can be for us. I hope that if you, you, you've never done so, if you've never discovered what those gifts are that you will think about you'll 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 evaluate you'll read scripture you you'll seriously think about the gift that god has given you and you'll uh, put it to work in helping someone else out i mean some of you here you have the the gift of helps some of you have the gift of teaching Others of you have the gift of administration or, or, or wisdom or, or knowledge. Still, some of you have been given gifts 
that I haven't even mentioned this morning. All these things are gifts that the Spirit of God has given to us. And when we begin to exercise them, what happens is we lose the the dullness and routine of our lives and we're getting caught up in the, the exciting ministry of being involved in building of God's kingdom. Third reality, third prayer request he makes here is that we need to know the greatness of God's power. Power's the uh, word of the hour these days, isn't it? I mean, everyone loves power. <laughs> uh, you, you hear about power lunches, you know, you hear about uh, uh, power living. This past week, as I was uh, listening to the radio, I heard an uh, uh, advertisement for a bank that asked the question, what would you like the power to do? <laughs> I mean, everybody's looking for power. And I'm afraid that that search for this power sends so many people off in these wild goose chases. They start looking for some cosmic display of force or the ability to miraculously change their their, their circumstances. But Paul here is not referring to some power religion, you know, that works magic, that escapes difficulty. No, he's referring to the power for godly living. A power that enables us to live in an evil world. A a power that is not something that we have in and of ourselves, but rather it's a power that comes from God himself. Did you know that when you became a Christ follower, you were immediately equipped with power? It came the Holy Spirit. It came with the Spirit of grace who came into your heart. We receive, when we receive the Lord Jesus, he gives us a spirit of love and of of grace and of power. (laughs) And all that comes to us when we believe in him. What we need to understand is how that power works. So Paul gives us the example how this power was demonstrated, how this power works in in Christ in his resurrection. Look with me, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul refers there to three successive events where power, God's power is demonstrated. Um, first, God raised Jesus from the dead. Second, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all competitors. And third, he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the family of God. Those three belong together. It's because of Christ's resurrection from the dead and his enthronement over the powers that evil, of evil that he has given him headship over the church. The resurrection and ascension were a decisive demonstration of God's divine power. So how can we know this power, you and I? Well, let me ask you this question. How was God's power displayed in Christ's resurrection? 
See, I, I think so oftentimes we, we think about the angels, you know, rolling away the stone or uh, the earthquake shaking the earth uh, or uh, the terror of the Roman guards. But see, you have to understand, those events followed Christ's resurrection. They, they followed his resurrection. They, weren't the re, they were the results of the resurrection. They weren't the resurrection itself. In reality, the power of God in the resurrection, raising Jesus from the dead, was very quiet. No one noticed. No one saw it happening. It all happened without anything buzzing or pounding or exploding. We're so used to power that makes noises, aren't we? <laughs> um, but God's power isn't like that. God's power is quiet, oftentimes unnoticed. And you don't have any sense that's really happening, but it's happening. And God's power has this peculiar uh, characteristic. It only happens when we begin to act. When you begin to exercise the gifts that God has given to you, then the power begins to flow, not before. Then God will work through you to accomplish things that will leave you gasping many times at what he has done. I mean, you didn't feel his power Suddenly, um, you don't feel strong, capable, mighty. No, you, you just feel weak. But then God's power is demonstrated. Paul says that God's power is made perfect in weakness. But see, we, we don't pay attention to that type of statement. Listen, if you feel weak, if you feel inadequate, if you feel insufficient, ineffectual, um, there's no hindrance to being used by, by God and exercising the power of God. Not in the least. In fact, Christ, Paul tells us, Christ is sufficient. Nothing else is needed. <laughs> Do you believe that? When I graduated from seminary, I was uh, going into student ministry. That was my plan all along. And I had uh, several interviews, several different job opportunities in different churches across the country. One was in a very large church, and then another one was in a church that, well, was pretty small. They'd never had a student ministries pastor um, in, 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 their, in their years. Uh, so I would, you know, it's just going to be a, a trial <laughs> kind of like thing. When I went back to the uh, classroom, went back to the seminary, I... I uh, looked up one of my advisors, and I asked him, I said, um, what do you think I should do? I got this option, I got this option, I got this option. He said, Joel, I, I can't tell you what to do, but I can tell you, I would suggest you go to the church where you'll need to depend upon God completely. Go into the situation, the ministry, where you can't do it on your own strength. I've always remembered that piece of advice. See, many people have discovered what God can do in their lives. Um, they never discover what God can do in their lives because they keep waiting to, to feel powerful before they act. Um, 
But that's not the way God's power works. Have, have you ever walked into one of those rooms um, and suddenly the light turns on and you didn't hit a switch or, or, or do anything? You just, you just stepped into, into that room. That room had these motion detector lights, right? And all you needed to do was step into the room and then the power came on. Now, I know that's a silly example, but <laughs> the power of God works in a similar fashion. It works when you reach out to somebody. It works when you sit down and exercise that teaching gift. It works when you comfort someone who's in trouble or you confront someone who's taken a wrong course. It works when you step out in faith. That's when the power of God's available. And it's a wonderful power. power. It goes beyond anything you could imagine. Remember the story in the book of uh, Joshua from the Old Testament when the Israelites were, were uh, wanting to cross the Red Sea, or not Red Sea, the, the River Jordan into the Promised Land? Um, the people of Israel were, were lined up and the priests were told to go first carrying the Ark of the Covenant uh, on their shoulders and they were to walk down to the River Jordan and when their soles of their feet um, actually touched the water, that's when the water parted. That's when they were able to walk through on that dry land to the other side. That's the way God's power works, friends. When you put it to work, when you begin to act, um, to act yourself, expecting him to be there, expecting him to work, then his power begins to work. There's no noise, no flash, you know. No movement. The power is already there, and God is just waiting for you to trust. Later on, in fact, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. That's the explanation. You'll never find out what God can do with you until you begin to step out. And take on some activity that you need power for. And then you'll discover God's power at work in you and through you. Have you ever received a, a new toy only to find out um, that it didn't come with batteries? I hate that when that happens, right? See, that's the difference between Christianity and every other religion. The difference is, that's the difference between Christianity and atheism or secularism or, or, or self-help. They're all packaged nicely. Their philosophies, they, they, they promise so much, but there's no power. There are no batteries. Without the power of Christ living in you, you cannot um, have unshakable hope. Hope is not wishful thinking or, or a blind optimism. No, hope is an unwavering confidence in the power of God. That's Paul's prayer in Ephesians, for these Ephesians, and for you and I. Paul is saying, I'm praying that the eyes of your heart, that they'd be open, that you come to know the hope and, 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 and know the power that's available to you as you face those challenges, as you face those, those hurdles in life. Then you can face them with absolute confidence. 
Now, let me get practical here. Let me give you what, just simply titled Five PowerPoints. Five wonderful things that God's power can do. I'll give you to him real quickly. First of all, Scripture tells us that is the power to face our inner hurts and fears. I find so many people locked uh, into uh, uselessness. They're just locked into not being able to move because they, they keep dwelling on their past. I mean, it helps to know our past and to acknowledge uh, our past, but once you know those things that, that set you on the wrong path, then you have to remember that Scripture says that we are to forget those things in the past and we're to press forward because we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. We're no longer what we once were. We therefore uh, can set aside that past. Having once faced it, we don't need to be immobilized by it. We can set it aside and day by day begin to walk with God and his, as one of his newly created children. We'll discover that his power enables us to overcome those um, dysfunctions in a bad past. Second, give you a second PowerPoint. That is, it's the power to discard evil habits. Listen, I know... <laughs> I know Christians who are still in bondage to uh, habits that have held them in this, this iron-like grip, um, an evil temper, lustful practices, hateful attitudes. I mean, here's the power that enables you to say no to those things and to continue to say no. It can break the grip those things have on us, this power. Third, it's a power to restore broken relationships. There may be members of your family or uh, friends that you haven't spoken to for a long time. I mean, the relationship <laughs> is entirely broken. You may be bitter over some experiences that you had long ago. Um, you never want to forgive somebody for what they once did to you. Here's a power. <laughs> God's power to forgive, power to remember that you have been forgiven. Therefore, you can forgive and you can heal those broken relationships and give a word of acceptance to somebody who has been estranged from you for a long time. Fourth, it's the power to change bad habits, bad attitudes, stop obnoxious behavior. Listen, I, I know some... Christians that are so obnoxious, admittedly, even as a pastor, I mean, it's hard <laughs> to be around them, right? They're constantly acting in such a way that they hurt people, they demolish relationships. No Christian needs to continue on being like that. I mean, I know we, we hear that excuse all the time. Well, I, it's just the way I am, you know? But listen, we have no right to use those excuses because we have the power to break every dominion known to man. I mean, that's what he says here in verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. The power to change bad attitudes. 
Finally, it's the power to reach out to others. Help them in their need. It's a power to respond to people's hurts around you and the power to take um, uh, some of your own time from your own calendar and to minister to them. That's what makes the church function as God intended it to here in, in this world. Listen, my prayer for you, my prayer for you is that you can live confidently as the eyes of your heart are enlightened to all of God's blessings. I pray that you might come to know the hope to which God has called you, the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints, and the incomparable power which God has already given you. Let's pray. God, thank you for the power you have given us, the hope that you have given us, the, the riches of your inheritance that you have given to us, might we know each one of those realities better and better each day. God, might we live with that hope and that power in full demonstration, might we live with confidence, God, that you are working in us and through us for your glory. We pray this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.